Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. 36th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the hidden value of emotional labor. I have the good fortune to be joined by Rose Hackman. She is the author of Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Our Power. The publisher is Flatiron Books. Rose is a British journalist who frequently writes for The Guardian and now lives in Detroit. Uh, She was raised in part in Belgium. And for The Guardian, she writes on issues such as gender, race, labor, policing, housing, and the environment with an eye to historically entrenched injustices. Rose, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. I'm delighted that you uh, could join us. So uh, give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. So the book is really trying to introduce to the mainstream public emotional labor, which is something that's been studied across academia for over four decades now. But most people who are outside of academia have no idea what it is. So what I do is I do a big overview of what emotional labor is in private, in public, what it really means in terms of the way in which we see work in the world. And I'll just give you a tiny bit um, of an insight into what that is. Emotional labor is the editing work of emotions that we do on ourselves in order to have an effect on the emotions of other people. So it's a smile that you might give to people around you, regardless of whether you're feeling good inside in order to make them feel good inside. And in our society, this is a form of work that is heavily feminized. We expect women to do it nonstop, whether it's in private or at work. And it's also a form of work that's highly invisible in spite of the fact that it has a huge amount of value, which is also what I argue towards the end of um, the book. Yeah, no, in fact, I happen to be a facial coder, which means I do some of my work based on the expressions of others. So when I'm on flights, I always notice that the the male pilot, and it's almost always a guy, uh, his emotional labor consists of welcoming us onto the flight. And the stewardesses, who are not always uh, female anymore, but still predominantly, do a great deal of emotional labor (laughs) as they go up and down the aisle feeding people and handling requests and so forth. So I I see that injustice happening all the time. So um, we got two realms here, as you mentioned, public and private. Let's take the private first. Um, Can you go into some of the particular uh, issues, manifestations that strike you as really crucial to try to change here? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, emotional labor, very sadly, is very invisible, even in private, when it's effectively the kind of work that's keeping families, communities functional. So when someone takes on the responsibility for everyone else's well-being, they're not just making sure that they're going to be there in the morning with a smile and in the evening asking you how your day was. They're also going to be doing all sorts of 
tasks, chores, activities that are going to ensure the well-being of the people around them. And I think you've probably guessed at this point that what <laughs> I'm describing is is honestly the role of a mother. It's, it's, it's the kind of person that we think of as a wife. It's generally a woman in a family or in a community that's going to be shouldering everyone else's just emotions, really. Yeah, and, and the and the male in the household may very much not <laughs> acknowledge or appreciate or actually add their own burden right. to to what that person is is doing. Um, you had one thing that was also interesting historically. Of course, you had uh, black nannies infamously uh, portrayed in Gone with the Wind as you know enjoying the the whole existence that they had there on the plantations. Um, you do speak a bit about that. Uh, it's particularly. Uh, you know, poignant and horrible instance of this domestic emotional labor. Right. One of the fascinating things about emotional labor is it's something that we really, really rely on. You know, sense of belonging, meaning, connectivity, those are just as important as food and shelter to all of us. And yet it's a form of work that we very, very happily offload onto the people that we see as the least valuable among us. And in this country, of course, the biggest example of that is the offloading of this kind of labor onto female enslaved people and then later domestic workers who are often working in you know, very, very harsh conditions. There is this very strange way in which we, are, we put these kinds of workers on a pedestal, including in private. We, you know, we have Mother's Day and we, we say oh, how amazing are these incredible people who are working for us or who are helping our, us live these good lives. And yet, on the flip side, we basically are putting a lot of people to work 24-7. Yes, absolutely. And on the public side, I mean, we had, yes, during the, excuse me, the pandemic, the essential workers who we suddenly glamorized or validated uh, for a while, but that's probably largely faded into memory at this point. Um, so nursing comes to mind, retails, obviously very emotional labor and uh, heavily, you know, for a female workforce. Um, do you want to take on either one of those two avenues? Yeah. So what's kind of fascinating also to me about emotional labor um, is it's a form of work, just like physical labor, intellectual labor, creative labor. And it's also a form of work that is just everywhere in our economy. It's the central part of so many jobs. You mentioned healthcare, retail, bar and services, bar and restaurant service industry, all of those um, kinds of jobs, millions and millions of jobs across the American economy. The main form of work that is required of the employees is emotional labor. And yet we're still having, well, I'm certainly having a lot of conversations trying to convince people that emotional labor is real. But if you want to think of basically, for example, a tipped server who is going to be providing you sure with you know, your food for the night when you go to a restaurant, when you come to tipping that person, you're not going to be tipping them really based on whether they delivered food and drinks on time, you're mainly going to be tipping them based on how they performed in terms of emotional labor. Did they make you feel welcome? Were they warm? Were they unflappable? You know, did effectively, did they provide you with a pleasurable experience? And that's emotional labor. Yeah, no, I've, I've been a waiter, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, you know, it's it's um, labor that uh, can be really excruciating, especially when 
patrons get to be unruly or forget their orders. And, um, you know, it's not surprising to me that waitering, waitering is one of the, I think, top 10, maybe about number three for difficult uh you know, jobs in the economy, yes. but uh, certainly nursing is not easy either. Absolutely. <laughs> Any, um, so you, you particularly did the research, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in three states, um, Michigan, New York, and Mississippi. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with Mississippi uh, because of all the instances where it uh, makes the national news for uh, horrendous labor practices and educational levels and so forth. Did you see um, any distinct differences as you were in those three locales and doing the work, or does this hold up in pretty much the same ways across those states? You know, what's really interesting is a lot of the people when I started um, writing this book, I, I wrote an article in The Guardian in 2015 uh, about emotional labor, and that's how I got this book deal. And a lot of the people that I interviewed initially, including academics, would say to me, oh, emotional labor is just a concern for, you know, privileged white women who have nothing left to worry about. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, actually, if you go and speak to people, real working class people, people who actually have, you know, quote unquote, real problems, um, they won't, you know, they won't be complaining about emotional labor. And I found that to be the absolute opposite. So Mississippi, as you say, where I spent a lot of time, you know, people didn't need to have studied sociology to understand what emotional labor is. First of all, you know, Southern manners is very much emotional labor constantly, regardless of where you fall on the socioeconomic spectrum. And second of all, you know, a lot of the black women specifically that I work, that I talked to could really identify with this form of work both in private and in public. A lot of them were in jobs in healthcare. You talked about nursing, um, you know, where you're constantly, constantly having to do emotional labor. I spoke to nursing assistants who, unlike nurses who actually earn a pretty, you know, decent living wage, nursing assistants are earning, you know, in the teens of thousands a year, 20,000 a year, and they are chronically on their feet and providing patients with that human face as they're, you know, recovering ideally. And then at home, because the system in Mississippi is so unforgiving on those who have not that much, there's a lot of compensating for systemic inequities. There's a lot of having to compensate, you know, if you have children, you're having to compensate for the fact that maybe the education system is failing your kids. You're having to do all of this extra emotional labor that the system isn't helping you out with and you're having to compensate for. Sure. And you may have a um, male partner who's actually incarcerated because, of course, we have vast incarceration rates in this country. Right. And and that's definitely something I touched on towards the end of the book, this idea that actually a lot of the violent policies of this country, whether you're thinking about mass incarceration, two million people incarcerated, predominantly men, overwhelmingly men of color. Actually, if you think about the fact that we are um, you know, a heavily militarized state. And I think it's nine out of 10 people in the military are men. If you think about the flip side of these policies, you've got an army of emotional laborers who are predominantly women who are effectively acting as the buffers of pain for this very, very difficult system. So if you're talking to a woman whose loved one is incarcerated, you know, she's not just compensating for the fact that her loved one is absent. And maybe that means less income, that means less help with children, but also she's 
being the person who's there for that person behind bars emotionally. She's actually often the one who's calling, who's putting her savings into making sure that she can still be in touch with this person, that he has a you know, a connection to the outside world, that he still has hope. That's a huge amount of emotional labor. Yeah, no, that they're essentially the emotional lifeline for those people. Because in the book, you cite that 50% of black women have a loved one who's incarcerated. That's just a tremendous burden. Yeah, um, it's huge. Yeah. And and then let's switch over to the, the men's side. Um, so you mentioned there is, you, I think you said, quote unquote, the, the man box. And there are seven pillars. And I don't know that we have to run through all of them. But what's kind of the, what is the situation of men in terms of their recognition, willingness to help? Uh, what, what kind of things are happening to men these days as the society moves ever more into a service economy, uh, probably an economy, quite honestly, that's going to be based on uh, emotional labor going forward to an extent that's even bigger than the last couple of generations? Right. Yeah. I mean, automation, of course, everyone's been completely up in arms and shocked about the fact that AI automation wasn't just coming for physical labor, but intellectual and creative labor too. And as you say, emotional labor is, is going to be remarkably sticky in our economy. It's fundamentally is the work that connects one human to, to another. It's not actually a work, a form of work that can be replaced. Um, so we are in this very interesting cultural moment where emotional labor it's almost like we can't deny its real value and the fact that it's replete in so many of the jobs that are the fastest growing jobs over the next decade and beyond. But at the same time, we're in the middle of a crisis of loneliness. Um, you know, one in two Americans suffers from loneliness. We also, for the last almost decade, have seen the average age of death fall in this country. And that is overwhelmingly due to deaths of desperation, suicide, alcohol. Loss of, loss of hope in general, yeah. Exactly. And a lot of these deaths, of course, disproportionately are concentrated in men. And why does this, why is this relevant to emotional labor? Fundamentally, the way in which we bring up our boys and men in this country is we deny them their full emotional lives. We deny them full emotional breadth. If you speak to any psychologist, they will tell you that all humans are relational. This is not just something that women are not the only emotional ones. Men are thoroughly emotional too. And that doesn't mean that isn't an insult. You know, it's sadly, because we have downgraded emotionality to be below quote unquote rationality, we're basically not encouraging our men to be full emotional human beings. So Emotional labor as a form of work that holds value is not just something that men should do more of to help the women in their lives share the load and the burden of communal well-being. It's also something that they should do because it will connect them to other people. And there are all sorts of studies that I quote in the book that really show that connected relationships in men is the secret to a longer, happier life. Yeah, no, they should be doing it for themselves as well as the other reasons that you just gave. Uh, absolutely. I, I often think of a horrendous quote from a CEO who said, I don't do feelings, I leave those to Barry Manilow. And it's just such a snide, condescending and myopic view of the the value and the importance of emotional labor and how this person could quite honestly be a much more successful CEO. 
Um, but clearly with that kind of attitude, they're not going to get there. No, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's really a kind of a win-win situation. It's just, there's a bit of a branding problem, I think, when it comes to emotions, emotional, emotional intelligence, emotional labor, which, you know, the, the facts don't back up the fact that we downgrade emotionality. Actually, it's really something that we should all be leaning into. Yeah, and I always think it's ironic because you can look at a sports event and you can see the men are very emotional. Right. But that's that one realm they'll allow themselves to do this in. And yet I've done work in professional sports, applying my facial coding expertise and EQ expertise. And they won't even use the word emotion, quite honestly. Uh, when I meet with general managers or coaches, they'll talk about a player's character. But that's as close as they'll get to talking about emotions, even though the whole sports realm is riven with emotions. It's just, it's amazing. It's, I mean, especially, absolutely. And especially, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, watching the playoffs. The truth is a good coach is a, is a coach who's able to really get into the psyche and emotional lives of his players or her players. You know, that's, that's actually, you know, bringing a team together, inspiring a team to go towards winning is not just about technical ability. No, absolutely not. I mean, they should have those things down. It's keeping them resilient, having hope, pride. I mean, any any lever you can press to create a more coherent and resilient group. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I can't resist before we run out of time here. You know, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, has written a book about manhood. Um, I don't know if you've taken a look at it or read a few reviews, but um, I, I have seen it uh, covered here and there, and it sounds like it's a uh, not going to solve any problems for us. <laughs> no. I haven't read it, but maybe I should. Maybe I should. I think, you know, the truth is, I think we need to be more expansive about ideas of manhoods, but we also need to really push forward this idea that, again, emotions, being able to, being emotionally literate, being able to regulate and modulate your feelings those are signs of strength, you know, being able to have an effect on the emotions of others, that's powerful. So I think, again, we need a rebranding for this form of work, for this area. It's it's not a sign of weakness to be very, very good at emotions. It's fundamentally the best of humanity. Yeah, no, I think it all goes back to that notion that somehow emotions are female and female is to be inferior. I mean, I've had so many speeches I've given where uh, women in corporate life have come forward and said, thank God someone's addressing this. Unfortunately, sometimes it's easier when a man brings these uh, things up because I'll be dismissed automatically if if I do so. And, and yet they are, they are so valuable. So uh, before we run out of time, what uh, anything else you want to bring up from the book in particular? Or maybe you want to talk about what you're next writing on? No, I mean, really what I'm excited about is these kinds of conversations and what I'm hoping to do as my next step is have conversations with people who have different forms of expertise, because if we're trying to build a world where emotional intelligence, emotional labor are finally properly valued, are given their fair due, I think that's going to need to happen with a lot of different cultural shifts and a lot of different policy solutions. So that's what I'm hoping for. And if anyone listening wants to reach out, to me, please, please do. Well, it, and it's important we've been talking about the U.S., but I mean, I've been aghast by this whole specter of strongman rule from er Erdogan to Putin to any, any number of leaders overseas that uh, 
we just seem to be almost digging in deeper into a kind of proto-fascist, certainly not more humanized version of leadership and and constructing societies. Right. It's such a great reminder, very sadly, that these forms of government, this kind of um, this kind of political system so often goes hand in hand with gender repression and very, very stark ideas of hierarchies, including men and white men at the top. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Well, I want to thank you, Rose, so much for joining me today. Uh, This has been episode 136, The Hidden Value of Emotional Labor. My guest, Rose Hackman, she is the author of Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work, Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Our Power. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram, in this case, from Gemma Hartley, who said, in general, unfortunately, we gender emotions in our society, but continue to reinforce the false idea that women are always naturally and biologically able to feel, express, and manage our emotions better than men, to which I would add, let's round out the equation here. Until next time, take care and be well. (music) 